Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today we are going to talk about the Opals last game against the United States, a bit of a review of the campaign, and a bit of a look at what else is happening in women's hoops at the Tokyo Olympics. And joining me is my co-host Jacinta Gavind. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. How are you going? Yeah, really well, uh, considering, you know, the unhappy result we had. Yeah, it was pretty disappointing for lots of reasons. I think the more acute reason would be that we, you know, overcame Puerto Rico and won by 27 to get to the quarterfinal and then to lose by such a margin in the quarterfinal too. But I think uh, overall, as the two of us have been watching the games quite closely and have been watching the campaign quite closely as well, Sometimes it's not just like the fact that you lost that's disappointing, it's how you lost that can be more disappointing. And I think how the Opals lost a lot of their games at this Olympics has been probably the most disappointing. I have to agree with you. I think, you know, the, the team had, you know, going into this game, they had so much promise after beating Puerto Rico by 27, having so many players hitting double figures. It seemed like they'd turned a corner and... I was feeling really positive. I, I thought they actually had a possibility to win. And like I said, I thought there was a win there, but it would have been close by a couple of points. And yeah, well, I really called that one wrong. <laughs> but look, I think there were a couple of bright spots in it. I think Kayla's performance in the game was really good. You know, she hit some good numbers, she hit some great shots, got in there for some good rebounds as well. And I thought that was a real bright spot for me. Um some of the other players that I was expecting more from, it didn't seem to happen. Tolo, I think I think for her the biggest thing was the mismatch with Brittany Griner. And that's not saying that Tolo's a bad player because she absolutely is not. But, you know, Brittany Griner's just got the height and the physicality and she's willing to go hard under the bucket. Yeah, maybe a little bit more athleticism and foot speed as well over Tolo and sometimes you know if you've got your work cut out for you on the defensive end that's going to knacker you like you're going to get tired out just from doing that so sometimes when it comes to the offensive end it's really hard to be able to play as hard for a long period of time at both ends of the floor sometimes you have to make a sacrifice of you know do I put my time and energy more into defending someone like Brittany Griner versus we've got four other people that can score but Also in Tolo's defense, she can only score as much or have scoring opportunities as much as she's allowed. Like you got to feed her the ball if you wanted to score. Very true. And um, Leilani, actually, she contributed 14 points, six assists. So in terms of assists throughout the whole campaign, she's been doing quite well. The thing that really confuses me, and I've been looking at the stats today, is so many players didn't get to the sorts of numbers that they do normally in the WNBL consistently and I've got to be honest that one really confuses me yeah and especially uh we had so many players in the Puerto Rico game um reach double figures as well 
Um, what I noticed actually, like we were coming off a high against Puerto Rico and like you said, we f- it felt like we'd really turned a corner because our offense was a lot more aggressive and we had a lot more people looking to be scoring threats. And it looks like to me against Team USA that we had regressed. We'd gone back to being passive and um, sharing the ball a little bit too much. And the thing is, I think, you know, people not getting into double figures is because it looks like people weren't actually looking to score. They'd run these sets with a lot of handoffs and ball screens and whatever else. It just took up time and it didn't give them any scoring options or it didn't look like they were looking for scoring options. And then it would come down to a, a rushed low percentage shot or someone just having to find something. And so I think to me that stat of not having a lot of scorers and double figures is kind of reflected in their stagnant offense to be honest i think the u.s defense was pretty tough Mm. you know they really didn't give too many opportunities for us to be able to get inside and they really made it hard to go for the three-pointers because they would just seem to be there minimizing the opportunities to take those shots so we'd rush them and the other part is again and this seems to have been across the entire campaign the number of shots that would just rim out or just oh. hit the it was so frustrating was, there were times when I was I've got to be honest I really wondered whether or not somebody had changed the diameter of the rim oh those rings have been actually a bit funny all the tournament like um heaps of the shots in the boom, some of the boomers games too they're just rimming out rimming out rimming out I don't know if it's Australia's preferred shooting style that doesn't match the rings <laughs> of the rest of the world but so we yeah. did miss, I think it's cricket where they say dropped a sitter. We did drop yep. a lot of sitters. Lots of missed layups. Again, um, not calling any specific players out, but it was yeah missing shots that they could have made and they were missing shots through the whole tournament, the same shots through the whole tournament. Just not making those adjustments of focusing on their finish. Those things, those little um, missed layups and missed shots under the basket, they definitely add up. Yeah, they do. They do, definitely. And, you know, unfortunately, that's it for the Opals for this Olympics. To be fair, though, if I look back at the whole campaign, Mm. there were players there who showed real brilliance and I think are going to be able to form a core for a future Opals team. Obviously, Ezzy is, you know, number one on that one. Her performance, even though her, her scoring in the last, in the US game doesn't show how well she played. Um, yeah. Her experience for the WNBA really translated well for the Opals in this campaign. Yeah, I totally agree. She's grown so much in the last two years. She's really held her own as well in the WNBA. Um, I think she's only played like two seasons now, two, three seasons. Yeah, yeah which means that she went to the WNBA quite young, but She's really held her own, really impressed that she's been able to transfer her development as a player into the Opals roster as well. Because sometimes a lot of players, you know, they, depending on what team they're playing for and what their role is in that particular team, like you're not always going to be the go-to scorer in, in your team. Sometimes you will be and sometimes you have to compromise that role in another team. But I really like how Ezzy was able to be really adaptive in this Opal squad and, and step up when they needed to as well. Yeah, I'm wondering how many more well, how many more times some of the players will be able to represent Australia in the Opals. You know, obviously Leilani comes to mind, mm. Tolo, um, 
Jenna mm. and Kayla. I mean, I wonder how much longer maybe the um, the World Cup. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I guess the advantage is that the Olympics is only three instead of four years away. But um, three years is still a really long time when you're um, 36 going on 39-40 by the next Olympics. Yeah. But the World Cup, I think, will be a real test of who will be able to carry on for another 18 months to make another Olympics campaign. The World Cup might be even more valuable to some players than the Olympics in a sense of getting a medal or getting on the podium in some way, winning the whole thing. But I think that will be a real test of who who of that older crowd is going to be able and willing to do another Olympics if they want to do another Olympics or if they just want to have the World Cup as their last hurrah. And well, the fact is that being held in Sydney, I think a lot of a lot of them would want to try and get the medal at home. Definitely. How often I like have we ever hosted a basketball World Cup in Australia? Yeah, we have. Pre two thousand Olympics. I think it might have been around ninety in the nineties we we hosted them before the Olympics. Well, we're very lucky then to have it again. It's such a great opportunity and it gives us the core of the future generation of the Opals an opportunity to be able to start the, the, the building towards the next Olympics. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the basketball landscape across the world, uh, which countries consider each tournament as more important, whether it's Olympics or World Cup, because sometimes different countries will use the Olympics to test out a future squad or to help groom like the emerging players and some people will use a World Cup to do that. So it will be really interesting to see what approach Australia takes for the Boomers and the Opals if they want to include some up-and-comers and emerging talent as, to, as the 11th and 12th players just to get them a taste of that standard and maybe has have them in preparation for the Olympics. Or maybe they just yeah. want to go with the the best 12 that fits the coach's philosophies and try and get a gold. It always comes back to that argument, and it's it's one that, that constantly cycles around is, you know, whoever the coach is that's trying to build the next generation, there's always going to be the potential that the team's not going to perform as well as people expect mm. because you've got a, a lot of new players in there and this is their opportunity to get experience. So a lot that needs to be looked at in relation to how are we going to look at the next three years? Is the yeah. World Cup going to be the one where we want to get the medal and then we're going to use that as a springboard to rebuild an Opals roster for the next Olympics? Or are we starting our rebuilding from now? And you know what's going to be really interesting is um, the preparation. Are they going to change the scheduling and preparation leading up to the World Cup compared to this Olympic campaign? Because the Opals... Let's be fair, we're very underprepared in a sense of time spent together, time spent on the court. I mean, it was a very even a short time. I think they only had like two or three Opals camps in Australia and that wouldn't have been the whole squad because I think some people would have been still overseas. And so they, they didn't really spend ample time gelling together on the court with, and then people were still fighting for spots. So I remember there was, I'm trying to think if it was last Olympics or an Olympics before, but there was definitely one time when, oh, maybe it was even when Jan Sterling was coaching. Anyway, there was a time when a different Opals coach was at the helm and basically the instruction was if you want to get considered for the next Opal squad, whether it was for an Olympics or a World Cup, 
you need to stay in Australia and play WNBL or you need to stay in Australia to be ready for camps. And so that was almost like part of the preparation of like, look, if you want to make the team, you need to stay here. And that was way before COVID. COVID wasn't even a blimp on the timeline. Um, so it would be interesting to see if something similar would happen in this sense where it's like, hey, look, why don't we all just stay here? We can meet each other more often. We can work out with each other more often. I don't know if there's any particular uh, FIBA laws or rules and regulations in how many hours a team can spend together because I know at a state level, you know, state teams can only spend so many time, like hours on court leading up to a nationals to make it fair for everyone. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see if, if everyone kind of has to stay home and play something local. So their preparation would be a lot smoother. Obviously, this time around, I think they only had two prep games. We had COVID. It made it really hard for the team to be able to play as the Opals and prep. You know, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And at some point, we really should have a talk about the World Cup and, you know, do a little bit of crystal ball gazing about that. Mm. Talking about crystal ball gazing, what about the rest of the Olympics? Um, I'm going to start off by throwing out Japan was pretty impressive. Wow, wasn't that a great game last night? Japan, Belgium. That was, I think I tweeted to my friend Roy Ward. I said, that was such a good game. I wanted a season two. Yeah. That was like, it was. I was so captivated by the game and they were trading baskets point for point. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, it's only 40 seconds to go. Like I just got so enthralled. I completely forgot about the time, but oh, wow. Wait, that's why I really like um, teams like Japan and China. I feel like sometimes they can be a bit isolated in the basketball landscape, but they do the right thing and try and get the right personnel in to develop their, their national team. Um, they work very hard together. And I'm really glad that it paid off for Japan, especially because they're hosting too, which is always makes it a bit more fun. Yeah, it does. Having watched Japan, I actually like watching Japan sporting teams generally. The women's basketball team is so quick, so athletic. I think they push every team they play because of that speed and athleticism. I'm actually surprised that they're not more successful. Yeah, I think though, and um, reflecting on, you know, this is oh, a good 10 years ago now when I played Japan a couple of times in a trial game. I don't know if it was their actual national team, but they wore Japan singlets, so I'm going to claim it. But it was um, <laughs> the style of game from then to now has changed a lot. They used to live and die by the three ball back then, uh, and I noticed that in the yep. game, especially against Belgium, they were a lot more confident and crafty with getting to the rack instead, giving themselves some better options. They got such a nice touch around the rim as well. They made some really, really tough shots um, under the basket, but... The thing that stood out to me, I found this on Instagram today, is that Machida has 51 assists in four games, which is an wow. average of 12.7 assists per game. So say 13 That's assists astounding. a game at the Olympics. That's an astounding number. 13. Wow. Average. <laughs> Not just a one-off. Average. That's amazing. Yeah. Look, I would love to see him go all the way. But based off what we've seen recently, it's really hard to go past the US for the gold. Yeah, I, it, it is. I think, though, to be honest, I haven't watched Serbia. They kind of snuck up on me. So to see them in the semi, I was like, oh, hey, hey, I forgot about Serbia. I'm sorry about that. Um, so US, Serbia in the one semifinal, Japan, France in the other semifinal. Based on what I've seen from the US, Japan and France, I think of those three teams, Japan have played the most cohesively and consistently with each other. So that's going to be in their favour. 
Um, the U.S. obviously yep. are very talented, very experienced. Uh, I think against the Opals especially, they had Brianna Stewart who was basically, you know, I think KD was actually doing a Stewie today against the Boomers. But Stewie had 20 points in the first half. Like that's just not... It's not yeah. good enough from an Opal standpoint or from an opposition standpoint, but also like was anyone else going to be that efficient in the US if Stewie wasn't going to be? They, the US still don't look as cohesive as, as I know them to be. I think they can perform a bit better. I don't know if it's with their experience um, and expertise that they'll just be able to turn it on and off and be able to gel really well when they need to, but I feel like they can still be a bit better. But Japan, between Japan and uh, US, Japan to me look the most cohesive. I would love to see a US-Japan game. Yeah, that could definitely shape up that way in the final. If we get a US-Japan game, to me, based off the way they've performed, that could be like one of those games that you just can't take your eyes off. No, no. Clear my schedule because this is what I'm doing for the next two hours. I'm just watching this game. I don't want to be bothered. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely got the potential to be one of those. Okay, well, it's been great doing all of these with you across the Olympics. It's a shame that the Opals didn't get the opportunity to go any further. But I still think that, you know, they'll come back, they'll sit down, analyze, figure out what didn't work, and they're going to come back at it again. That's the one thing that we do know about the Opals. It's been great running through these with you, Jacinta, and we'll be talking real soon again. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for um, sharing this journey with me, Paul. It's a shame that the journey ended so quickly and uh, under the circumstances that it did, but we've got the big world champs to look forward to now. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. Bye. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.